The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Mary Gallagher, author of Authoritarian Legality in China, Law, Workers, and the State. Mary is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, where she is also director of the Kenneth G. Lieberthal and Richard H. Rogel Center for Chinese Studies. She is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Mary, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Marco. Thanks for having me. The context of your study is two major economic and social transitions of the last few decades in China, from socialism to capitalism, or are we supposed to say socialism with Chinese characteristics, and from an agricultural to an industrial economy. Where does labor and labor law fit into these transitions? Well, the way I uh, framed the book was that this transition, or transitions that China is going through, are really fundamentally about urbanizing China's workforce and providing a framework for people to be employed outside of what the previous system was, which was socialism and lifetime employment, what we call in China the Iron Rice Bowl. And um, so the book looks at this really critical period in time where the Chinese government decides in the 90s to move away from the socialist workplace to a more market-based, contract-based employment system. <clears throat> and um, at the same time, although a little bit after the initial um, legal, legal reform that started in the 90s, really in the 2000s, they also make the decision to begin to incorporate rural migrant workers into this contract-based system. They had always theoretically been included, but they hadn't really been included until the 2008 labor contract law was passed. And so this is a period when the Chinese government is trying to actually make the social system more inclusive, more protective, and more equal. The social system. The 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 so people's access to employment security, people's access to things like pensions and healthcare, and it is um, going. It's actually doing something that in, at the time most economies uh, were not doing. Most economies were adopting more labor market flexibility, and China was actually moving to a system where the labor standards are very high, um, and trying to incorporate more workers into that system. So it's sort of going against the grain. And you talk about the relevant laws, obviously, and you just mentioned the labor contract law, but preceding that was the labor law of 95. So can you talk about the two laws and the several other laws in 2008 that are related? Yeah, I see this book as being framed around this time period, which is sort of bracketed by the 1995 labor law, which was the first labor law ever passed in the PRC, and um, the 2012 revision to the labor contract law, which was passed in 2008, and the subsequent and continuing um, debates and arguments in China about whether to revise or even repeal the labor contract law. 
So as the Chinese economy has slowed down, this type of very high labor protections and um, high level of employment security, which means it's difficult to fire people, has really been criticized by some parts of the Chinese government as not what China needs at this point in time, that China actually needs more flexibility and more, um, <clears throat> more discretion for employers. So this is a, a time period which I thought was really interesting, and I, and I basically ended the book as this debate was, was going on, whether or not China had actually made a mistake in, in adopting all of these really protective laws. Hmm. And I think part, partly that's an important part of the book because the book is, is partially looking at what, are, what were workers' expectations about the, the legal system and the laws that seem to guarantee them pretty, um, pretty expansive rights. And what happens, you know, it's very easy to give people rights. It's actually hard to take away rights from people. It seems counterintuitive that an authoritarian government would legislate relatively high labor standards and protections for workers, um, although in the socialist era, workers were supposed to be taken care of from cradle to grave. But why would the Chinese government decide to do this in 1995? I think the reason why they started to do this in 1995 was a way to, I think you have to look at it from two perspectives, basically. The first perspective is that if you're looking at it from a perspective of a state enterprise worker in 1995, no matter how protective these laws were, they were not going to be anything like what they had enjoyed under the socialist system. So for state enterprise workers, um, and you know, at that time, a very large percentage of urban workers were still employed in the public sector, this was going to mean a reduction in their benefits and entitlements as urban citizens uh, and public employees. But for migrant workers who were you know, just theoretically going to be included and the laws were always written in a way that didn't exclude them um, within the laws, although there were lots of ways in which they were enforced that didn't, did exclude them, for migrant workers and for rural people, these laws are really opening up new rights and protections that they never enjoyed under socialism. So I saw it as a strategy that the government was doing to both expand rights to one part of society at the same time that they were reducing rights. And of course, by the end of the 1990s, there were massive layoffs in the state-owned sector. And partly it was done through these laws, like putting moving people from lifetime employment to contracts and then um, using the contract to then dismiss people, like your contract has expired and where you can be bought out of your contract. So by putting the notion of contract into employment, which hadn't existed before for state-owned enterprise workers, this was um, you know, a really important political shift for the government. <clears throat> Later on, I think, and the, the expansion of the um, labor rights that you see in 2008 is much more about leveraging um, employment as a way to push people into urban life, as a way to move rural migrants away from land security into um, employment security. And that's something that's sort of ongoing, that the government has this big plan 2014, it announced um, to have this new style urbanization where it would urbanize 100 million people within a decade or so. And um, there's really no, China, China, like the United States, a lot of its um, welfare system is built around employment-based welfare. So one way is, the, 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 the way, the, the major way that people get access to good pensions and 
um, better health insurance is, is through having a formal job. You mentioned um, enforcement and compliance. How has China done on that side of the law? Because so they look great right. on paper. So the argument that I make in the book and that's based on a lot of research over the last few years is that the the there have been improvements. So there have been improvements in the number of people who have been employed with contracts. There's been slight improvements in migrant workers' access to social insurance, and that really varies um, a lot by city. And um, But at the same time, the other part of the argument in the book is that these benefits tend to accrue to people who have um, higher education, better skills, um, p- people who have a lot of bargaining power with bosses, with, with, with their employers. And um, in the context of labor shortages in China, so in, 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 in manufacturing and then in high-skilled and technical areas, there's been these pretty significant labor shortages. Uh, when people have that sort of bargaining power, I think they can get um, access to these new protections in the law. But for people who are not well, not uh, highly educated and don't have a lot of skills, um, they tend to, to not receive the same degree of protection. The, it's not unique to China. Right. The segmentation that you described, I found really interesting. People who had more or less education, but also the generational differences, right. the people who grew up under socialism versus the migrants. And from your description, Part of it was a matter of expectation that the iron rice bowl was a guarantee, and this was a fall from that. Whereas the migrant laborers were used to being treated like dirt, you don't put it that way, Um, and now they have, at least on paper, some protections. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it goes back to this idea of um, sort of the way the government, you know, increased rights for one group and, in a sense, decreased the protections to another group. And I think by doing that sort of balanced support, um, state sector workers at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s were super unhappy. I mean, there was very large, there were very large protests in major parts of China, like in the Northeast. Um, migrant workers at the same time, um, they really started to get more active um, politically at the end of this time period um, after the financial crisis uh, and for other for different reasons really. So it's, it's not just about what the laws say on paper, it's what people's sort of relative expectations are about what protections they deserve. And the labor market segmentation in China between urban and rural people is still really a significant divide, the, the, the way in which citizenship and citizenship rights are different based on what 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 hukou you have, what household registration you have, and and so it really the argument that I make about state sector workers is that they judge the law very negatively, um, not only because procedurally sometimes it didn't really work for them because they had claims about lifetime employment that the law simply didn't honor, and that was very. Um, um, it was very enraging for them to, to, to feel like the rules had been changed midstream. Which they, which had, midstream. they had, yes. Yeah. And, you know, that's, a, that's an adjustment that China, compared to some other socialist countries or post-socialist countries, you have to say in retrospect, didn't manage that badly uh, in the sense, I mean, they didn't suffer fatal 
level of protests. Uh, they they bought off workers when they can, when they could. They um, in some places those workers really were never going to be reemployed in um, in formal jobs, and they went into the informal economy. I think the other factor for explaining why state sector workers eventually not only because they were older um, and older workers just generally are not as protest uh, prone, but the other thing that's really important about thinking about different generations in China is that I also think older workers took a hit partly because they felt like the lives of their children were improving. And their mm -hmm. children were in this new market economy. They were getting higher incomes. They, they didn't have employment security, but they hardly cared because if they were well-educated, or even if not, they were, they were switching jobs and they were jumping around. And, and I think that also balanced um, this very, you know, they, it balanced their own grievances against what they saw as real opportunities for the next generation. I don't know if you saw the article in today's New York Times about... Chinese, the Beijing authorities getting rid of all sorts of right. migrant workers, but not only the low status workers, right. the construction workers right. and the domestics and people like that, but also high tech people who've come in from other places, right. some of whom had good jobs right. like Baidu, right. but they are technically semi-legal or illegal and living in horrible housing. Right. So closed down the housing because there was just a fire a couple weeks ago that killed right. 19 right. people. But it seems to me that, first of all, I don't know if these workers have any protection from these labor laws at all. But also, it's one thing to tell villagers that they need to go back home. It's quite another to tell really well-educated college graduates right. who are in high-tech fields, which are fields that the Chinese government wants to encourage, sure. that they need to leave. Right. I haven't read that article. I've read previous articles about the fire and, and the um, expulsion of a lot of what they've been calling low-end or uh, low-status migrants. I can. I mean, there's a lot of debate within these um, megacities uh, like Shanghai and Beijing to how open should these cities become to people from other parts of China? And Shanghai, I would argue, is even more resistant because they value their sort of distinctive culture and their language, and they are seeing it being eroded, um, even by people who are, who are highly educated. So from the local government's perspective, which is always an important thing to consider in China, there may be a feeling that we can um, become a more, um, we can help the workers who are more local um, and give them jobs as opposed to these outsiders. So the same sort of debate. I mean, migrant workers in China are often framed in the same way that in the United States we hear illegal immigrants being right. framed. So that could also be going on. On the other hand, I think what will be really important is what do the employers do? Um, and if the employers um, really need these these um, more highly skilled workers, they will find a way to, to get them in. And that, again, could be part of the local government's bargaining um, with these, if these, if these companies are not um, implementing the law and not signing formal contracts and not providing some sort of, you know, maybe dormitories or something that are more safe, then this could be a way that the local governments have some leverage over, over companies. We have actually run out of time, but I want to ask you one more question because I think it's so important. It's basically the, the background and the foreground of the book. 
in some ways, the Chinese government has raised expectations mm -hmm. with these laws. So people want to claim their rights. Mm -hmm. They claim their rights, and then they're pushed down. Mm -hmm. if, they have, if they feel they have to protest, the protests are broken up, lawyers are in jail, rights lawyers, mm -hmm. et cetera. What, what does this tell us about, to use your phrase, authoritarian legality? I think the, authoritarian, the, the notion of authoritarian legality is this idea that authoritarian regimes regimes can, can borrow institutions that we think of as associated with democracy, like rule of law or elections or legislatures. And this is sort of a global trend where authoritarian regimes are using institutions more effectively to maintain their, their rule as opposed to democratize. Um, and I think this just shows that the Chinese government has some you know, basic challenges in front of it going forward that are have a lot to do with, with the urbanization of millions of people and rising expectations, um, both among urban and rural people, and that they haven't figured out the way to do that. It, I don't, I am not suggesting in the book that this means China has to democratize or that this Chinese state is going to collapse. Because really the argument is that they're doing these things, they're expanding rights because they have these other goals that have to do with urbanization, that have to do with um, solving the demographic challenges of the workforce. Um, and they haven't figured out the alternative to these institutions that we associate with democracy. We have run out of time. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much.